0: We have a very rich feast of texts today. Um, We're going to look at the collect and one word from the gospel. (laughs) And we'll start with the collect. As you can see, the collect in the bulletin is not the collect appointed for today, Trinity 10. It's the collect appointed for last week, Trinity 9, as you all remember. It's still a good prayer. The essence of Anglicanism, by the way, is in its prayers, and the essence of the prayers of Anglicanism are the collects. Most of them, by the way, do not originate in the Reformation. They don't originate in the High Middle Ages or the glorious early patristic period. They come, most of our collects, from the Dark Ages, that period between about 500 and 800 when we peer through the mists. And yet these... Prayers, especially the one today, really incarnate the essence of what it is we believe. I come to understand more and more as I work with them and whatever changes we have to our liturgies and to our prayer books, these colics keep floating around, they may find themselves here and there, stranded for a while, brought back in they 're always settling down, and they set the tone they set the tone for the week by the way. And you'll find the collect accurately printed on your weekly lectionary, so you are rescued there. And you can pray the week through uh, with relative peace of mind. Let's look at that prayer. If ever there were an Anglican theology of prayer, this is it. (laughs) Listen. Let your merciful ears, O Lord, be open to the prayers of your humble servants. And, and... That they may obtain their petitions, always a nice idea, make them to ask such things as shall please you through Jesus Christ, etc., etc. Lord, in your mercy, in other words, hear our prayer, yes. And in order for us to have you not just hear us, but to grant our wishes, please go way back anteriorly. And make us your humble and obedient servants to ask such things as shall please you. There's a wonderful logic to this when you think about it. Make us ask for what you are already disposed to do, and we can be sure we'll have our prayers answered in the affirmative. Well, that's pretty easy. We can move on now to something else. (laughs) Anytime we invite God to make us think or feel anything or do anything, even if it is to make his will be done, we must be ready for God to grant that prayer. And scripture shows us that God is quite ready to come inside our hearts and souls and plant the germ of what it is that he wants to do. How does that feel? It should feel wonderful, shouldn't it? <laughs> it depends. It depends upon what we want and what that has to do with what God wants. If the two are the same, and that's a big if, or pretty well lined up, what God wants and what we want, we will feel like we got just what we wanted. We'll ask for what we want, God will grant it, and we'll say, wow, the power of prayer. That we went where we wanted to go, praise God, and we will, maybe even after that prayer is granted, be thankful and we'll even maybe not just feel thankful, but give thanks. If we feel, however, that God is dragging us to where we don't want to go, then we are probably correct in assuming that what we wanted and what God wanted did not line up in the beginning. Today's talk is really about the idea of us being dragged, drawn, as our English word has it, and we'll explore that to where we don't want to go. If you've ever been to Disney World in Orlando, there's a ride there called the Tower of Terror. This is a talk on the Christian life, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) Tower of Terror, like many of these Disney rides, is set on this very foreboding scenario. These rides reek with a sense of original sin. Something terrible has happened in this seedy, broken-down 1920s Hollywood, already we're in trouble, hotel. And as you're led through all these dank, steamy rooms, a boiler room and a sort of decayed lobby, you are prepared for the ride that comes. You step into the usual vessel, whether it's a boat or a plane or a car, and you're taken up this tall elevator. And you wander through scenarios which reveal, in ghostly fashion, the misdeeds that were done. Now, I would be remiss in giving away the climax of the ride, but anyone who approaches the Tower of Terror from the outside hears through the open windows at the top the screams of those who are temporarily imprisoned within. That's the people riding the ride ahead of them. Because what happens to your little vessel as it glides through these gleaming mirrors is it comes into a freight elevator. The door is shut. It's dank, it's steamy, it's dark, and the elevator plummets to the bottom of the building. It's then pulled up, and this happens again and again. Now... (laughs) I remember my son Eric saying to me as we went down the third time, Daddy, I don't like this ride. (laughs) And I wanted to say, neither than I. But here... Here is, here is the genius of this ride. Otis Elevator took care of the hydraulics, and they came to Disney very proud of themselves. They said, when they get into this elevator, the people are going to plummet down at the speed of gravity. And Disney said, you obviously don't get it. They are to go down Faster than the speed of gravity. They are literally to be dragged down, clutching the bar as the elevator is ripped out from underneath them. To be dragged down to the center of the earth at the speed faster than gravity is an experience I promise you none of us shall ever have. I pray outside the Tower of Terror and outside of the Christian life. Aren't you so glad you came here today? (laughs) Now, and this is where it gets to the Christian life. As terrifying as that ride is, how many people are out there waiting to line up and go through the whole thing over again? It's also about as exhilarating as anything you get this side of six flags. Ponder these things. The Christian life promises you exhilaration, but it's an exhilaration just tweaked this side of utter fear, terror. So, yes, (laughs) let this weave its way through our talk. If God got us where he wanted, whether that was what we intended or not, we have reason to feel thankful. If we got God to where we wanted, whether or not God intended any such thing, then I would suggest whether we feel thankful or not, our troubles are only beginning. And we often look at prayer in those terms. We either get God to do what we want, or he already has us in his path. But the concept of God pulling us toward what he wants for us, even in spite of ourselves, which I'll suggest is fundamental to the Christian life, is a difficult one to open. The concept of being dragged around by God, however, is introduced by our gospel text today. Although translated as draw, the Greek word elko used in this passage, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him, has a much more restricted semantic domain than our English word of draw. The word elko literally means to drag, thus law and nida. To pull or drag requiring force because of the inertia of the object being dragged elko, to drag or pull by force, often implying resistance. Although our English word draw is drawn from the same Germanic root, tragen, the semantic domain of draw has expanded considerably into softer and more gentle territory. Yes, draw meant drag once. It still does if we use it that way along with the 18 other meanings that the Oxford English Dictionary Lekt But we speak of drawing people together, drawing people in. We draw inspiration from something we draw on our experience. And there are connotations, gentle connotations of invitation and persuasion, which are simply not there in the word elko. It's not to say that they're not there in Jesus or what he says, but they are not there in today's text. So, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me drags him. We're happy with that, yes? (laughs) It is a case, like many others, where a whole theology has been predicated, however, upon a misunderstanding. I speak rather strongly. I am not saying that Jesus or his Father does not prevail upon our goodwill and our freedom of choice in the most suggestive and provocative manner. He indeed truly does. But we do not see that side of him here, interestingly, and that's all I wish to address. This distinction was pointed out by R.C. Sproul or at a conversation at a Christian college not far from here. The word elko is used to describe drawing from a water, water from the well, and his interlocutors, taking issue with his very strong view of God's sovereignty, said, Well, Dr. Sproul, you do not drag water from a well, do you? To which R.C. replied in his inimitable way, No, but you don't stand at the top of the well calling, Here, water, water, here, water, water. (laughs) If you came on a bus, it will wait. Anyone who has dragged a two-gallon bucket of water up a 30-foot shaft, by the way, hand over hand, will understand exactly what the word means in whatever language. English semantic domains regardless, the speech is here about energy expended upon dead weight, inertia, resistance. The resistance of someone falling down that shaft, being suspended like Absalom between heaven and earth and wondering what on earth God has in mind. Thus God drags us to himself initially, Whatever our response. And thus he drags us to himself continually, I suggest. Whatever our response. Now, let me clarify. We're invited to commit ourselves to the Lord. And at that point, the world takes on a whole new meaning. And our relationship is cemented. And I have no doubt about that. And no idea, again, how God's freedom and his sovereignty work together in that But if we think, because we've said, I have decided to follow Jesus, that we're out of the woods, God has another surprise for us. And the good news is that whatever God has in mind for us is invariably better, a thousand times better than what we had wanted for ourselves. This is the joy in the sermon I'm trying to proclaim here. This is the sweetness, the peace, the mellowness of heart. What God has in mind for us is always for his glory and for our good. Let's return to the texts. I have said that the theme for today is also one of thanksgiving. Well, I didn't say that, but I'm saying that right now. Good grief, you say. Indeed, grief and grieving which are the subject of the texts we heard, the Old Testament and the psalm, we heard one of the truly penitential psalms, are all about loss. And yet Thanksgiving, which is what is the meaning of our word for the Eucharist, which is the subject of the whole text in which Jesus offers himself as bread of life, Is very much something that we discover too, elusively, in our life. God invites us to a place of mellowness in heart, a place in which we can give thanks, but He often has to pull us there against our resistance. We have to let go of what we're hanging on to, we have to let go of what we thought we were, what we think we are, and where we think we're going. And that's a big challenge, not too big for God. And that's good news. This is what I love so much about grief. And I'll put it that way with utter sincerity. Because when we grieve, we are malleable. We're soft, once again. Ask a pastor what he'd rather take, a funeral or a wedding. You don't have to ask about what the answer is. Even though there may be rancor between members of a family... A funeral is usually a time in which people genuinely are drawn together by grief into some kind of unity. The realization of what they have lost is so immense that all of us are placed back into God's hands. You get people together for a wedding, God forgive me, weddings are wonderful things, but they're usually off the chart in terms of contention, strife, Struggles and battles. Why? There's so much to look forward to. And people are so determined that they're going to grab onto everything that they can get of what is there. And put it all into this first wonderful day of their life together. It's a beautiful thing. It doesn't always find us at our best. That's fine. The marriage usually does. I remember the beautiful phrase of Joni Mitchell, though, in Big Yellow Taxi. Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? Grieving is a very profound act of thanksgiving. It reveals the truth that we don't. We don't know what we've got. We don't appreciate what we have been given. We don't give. We take, usually. And what we've got, we take for granted. And we certainly don't give thanks for that which we take for granted. If God is the giver of all that we have, then that lack of thanks, that ingratitude, is a problem. It gets between us and God. It gets between us and everyone in our life. As he says in the beginning of the letter to the Romans, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened did not honor him. They did not acknowledge him. They did not give God thanks. They did not give God thanks for everything that they, that we have. They did not say to God, everything we think we have is yours anyway, to dispose as we wish, as you wish, rather. If there's a lesson in all this for us, then, it's about thanksgiving. About learning to be content with whatever God has given us. To have what Ron Rollheiser calls mellowness of heart. God is in the business of changing our hearts. That's the core to all this. That's the core of our liturgy. He's not in the business of giving us practices so much or means of climbing some ladder of perfection, though he will do that. He's not just in the business of giving us rules to follow so we can live a spotless and clean life and keep out of each other's way and do the odd thing that is good as we wait for our ultimate reward. God is in the business of changing our hearts, which means putting his desires inside them. And like the promised land, which we're invited to occupy, our hearts are already full. They're inhabited by our own desires. And in order to even dream of allowing God's desires to be planted in our hearts, we have to actively help him in mortifying, extricating, putting to death, if you like, a lot of the desires that we already have because they're not of him. They're of us. They're all to do with what we can see and what our sense is of who we are and what we need and what we've got to have. When we come to the Eucharist, then, we ponder this most wonderful thing. The God of the universe has placed himself powerless in not just a manger but in our hands. This is not my insight. This is Luther's. The God of the universe has made himself into this piece of bread, everyday common bread, which he places in our hands to do with what we will. We may want to live this, to lift up this bread of life, put it in some kind of beautiful gilded monstrance, worship it, bow to it, adore it, and venerate it. That is well and good but God in Christ is not inviting us to ascend some ladder into heaven there to sit with him ensconced, not yet at any rate. God in Christ is inviting us not just to follow his example, but to invite him into our hearts so that he may live his life through us and we may live our life for this world as we pour it out as he did. So think on the word Elko. Think of God's grace. Think of God's wonderful impatience that he will not settle for second best. Give thanks for God's determination that he will not let us draw the boundaries over which we will not cross further and further into his service. Thank you that if we pray and ask him to give us the desires of his heart, as we have just done, that he will honor us by making that prayer come true. Amen.